come this morning to the last passage in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, verses 4 to 18. And whenever I read Paul and study his letters, I, I can never cease to be amazed by the fact that Paul the Apostle was at one and the same time Christianity's greatest theologian, and he is the most practical preacher who ever lived. Paul has revealed to us divine truth of God's eternal purposes and his decrees and the glory of his sovereignty and all that God has chosen to do for us freely without any way that we can deserve any of his goodness and any of his blessings. But then he turns around and he takes the principles of the universe and he applies them to daily living in ways that we cannot miss unless we absolutely refuse to let God tell us what to do. What a beautiful passage. This closing exhortation, the thrust of it is that we as the people of God are to salt the earth with the presence and the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. And so let us examine the threefold encouragement He gives us to have properly seasoned lives. In verses 2 through 6, Paul encourages us to live wisely. I had trouble finding words to put on the uh, emphases in this passage because they are so comprehensive. But taken as a unit, I believe these verses encourage us and then tell us how we are to live wisely. You know, wisdom is seeing life from God's point of view. And the book of 1 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth in a very evil and wicked city, a city where every religion on the face of the earth flourished, a melting pot for people from every society and nation. Writing to them, Paul said right up front, there in Greece, the seat of philosophy and human wisdom, the wisdom of men is always and forever and without any exception, foolishness in the eyes of God. He tells us that to live wisely, our lives must be specifically ordered according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. What does he say? How practical can he be? We're to pray. Now, men don't seem to think that prayer is practical. They'd rather work it out themselves but prayer is the most practical of all activities. How are we going to stay alert? How are we going to be thankful, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. How are we going to do what God wants us to do by salting our own lives with a practice of prayer? We're to pray, to be alert, and to be thankful. The soul flourishes in, in an attitude of prayer and it dries up without it. There is no substitute for prayer, but we misunderstand it. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, wrote in his epistle, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. You know, somewhere, somebody has sold a lot of us the idea that God is a puppet on the string 
and that if you pray hard enough or long enough or find the right words or promise God the right deal, he'll just jump and do whatever you want him to do. Beloved, that's not what it means. When Jesus said, anything you pray for in my name, you'll receive. You see, Jesus was a Jew. And the Jewish concept of the name was that the name was the perfect expression of everything that Jesus is. When you pray in his name, you pray in his place for his purposes according to his desire within his will. And when you have so prayed, all of heaven will bow to answer your prayer. There's no substitute for it. None at all. But what it is supposed to do is to line us up with the purposes of God, not to line God up with our desires. And then notice in verses 3 and 4 what Paul says, praying at the same time for us that God may open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. How Paul desires to be the instrument of the grace of God. You know, all that God does for us is of grace. There's no denying that from His Word. It is nothing of our own making, of our own choosing, of our own deserving. It is all of grace. But in the mystery which He has uh, taught through the prophets and through his word and through his people involved in that mystery is that though it is all of grace, he has ordained the means and the means is always to be the proclamation of the word. And so Paul prays not for persuasiveness. Paul doesn't pray for influence. Paul doesn't pray for the ability to move men. He prays that the word of God may have an open door through him, even though he is imprisoned in Rome and guarded by the Roman cohort. What does he say in these verses about living wisely? And in verse 2, he said we are to pray, to be alert, and to be thankful. Here he says three things. We are, in verses 5 and 6, to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. We speak for God as far as He is concerned, as far as the world is concerned. We must be careful that when we do that, we give an accurate view of who, what, who and what God is and what God wants. He says three things in verses 5 and 6, that we are to behave wisely toward outsiders. Now think about that. You know, I wish I could count the number of times through my life, especially in the little town where I lived in Arkansas for several years, when people in horror would say, repeat something that so-and-so who's clear outside of the family of the church was talking about or had heard about or, or whatever. And they were horrified that that person had the nerve to do that. Why not try to be horrified 
about the individual that may damn the person who's talking to hell because they're not acting wisely toward outsiders. Act wisely toward outsiders. Take every opportunity, he says. Make the most of every opportunity. And then he explains what he means. Our speech is to be seasoned with grace. Now, do you know what grace is? Everybody here nearly could give me a perfect definition. It is unmerited favor, right? Grace is given to somebody. It's love and forgiveness and mercy and blessing that's given when they don't deserve it. That's why you're saved, if you are, by grace. Now, he says your speech is to be seasoned with grace. Now, what does that mean? That means you don't have a right to ever speak a word that's not seasoned with grace. And before you do, I want you to remember that in the eyes of God, you're as guilty a sinner as anybody else is. And if you know grace, give it. If you want to sow the other stuff, you can have all of it you want. God will see that your crop comes in. Let your speech be seasoned with grace, responding properly to each person. Responding properly to each person. Think of the gospel. Think of God's reputation before you speak. Careless behavior demonstrates to the world that as far as it teaches the world in their own eyes that there's no reason for them to come to Jesus. Why should they? Why should they? Now, like the New Testament church, we're a minority in society, and don't kid yourself into thinking anything else. We're a minority, like they were. Like the New Testament church, by and large, the people that need the gospel won't come to us. The New Testament church didn't have the whole Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. We've got it. The world won't read it. Like the New Testament church, we need to know how to reach them with the good news. How are we going to do it? By properly seasoned lives. That's the only way. He says we are to be salt. It's reminiscent of Jesus' words when he said to his followers, not you are to be salt. He said you are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus went on to explain salt can become insipid. It can lose its potency. Now, what does salt do? It was virtually the only preservative they had in the ancient world. It preserved. In many ways, salt could be used to purify unclean substances. And that's our function in this world. We're to purify it. We're to preserve it by salting this world with the presence and the principles of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can live wisely is by prayer, being alert and thankful, 
by acting wisely toward outsiders, by considering God's reputation before we speak, by taking every opportunity, and by our conversation and our lives being seasoned always with grace. And then in verses 7 to 9, Paul is teaching by giving them information that should be of concern to them. He is teaching them to love wisely. You know, love is not an emotion. Love doesn't qualify as an emotion. If you understand anything at all about what the Scriptures teach about the love of God and the love which He plants in us, which we share with others because of our salvation. Love is an act of the will, and love is always something that you do. Always. Paul is teaching them to intelligently care for by virtue of knowing the needs of others, by teaching them to intelligently care for, support, and pray for others. Notice what he says. As to all my affairs, Titius, my beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond slave in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Now by this time, when this letter was written near the close of Paul's life, every Christian in the world at that time knew that Paul was in jail in Rome. They knew the excesses in the insanity of Nero Caesar. And they knew that it didn't look very good for Paul as far as his future on the earth went. And they cared about him. But Paul wanted them to cultivate the habit of loving wisely, of not just having a general concern, but of knowing the need, of knowing the situation so they could love and pray wisely that God would meet the needs of others. By the way, just a side thought, this Colossian church was surely among the very greatest churches in all of the ancient world. Notice the products of this church, just the ones mentioned in this little book, and this isn't all of them. Onesimus, he mentions here, was a runaway slave who had come to Paul who had mistaken some commitment to God for a need to be free from his worldly situation, which he had no real power over except to go outside the law. Paul taught Onesimus. Onesimus responded and repented. And Onesimus was such a big Christian. He had been so wrong, but he was such a mature Christian when Paul had taught him that he went back home facing possible death sentence. Onesimus was a product of the Colossian church. Epaphras was the founder and the pastor of the Colossian church. And oh, what wonderful things Paul has to say about Epaphras here and elsewhere. And Philemon, the slave owner of Onesimus, to whom Paul addressed that beautiful little one-chapter letter 
that bears his name was a product of the church at Colossae. You know, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, I wish I could tell you deep and wonderful things about God, but he said, you're like babies. You, you can only take milk. You can't take meat. And yet, Colossians is one of the richest and deepest and most beautiful statements about heavenly things that has ever been written. What a difference between Colossae and Corinth. What a great church it was. Their lives were obviously properly seasoned for Paul's words are just not corrective but encouraging. They were taught to live wisely and to love wisely. And then in closing this letter in verses 10 to 18, I believe one thing Paul is doing besides bearing greetings from others is giving example. And it is always a powerful thing in teaching truth to be able to show examples of those who practice it. And he does this by naming these men and characteristics about them. First of all, he mentions Aristarchus, who is a fellow prisoner with him. Now that's all he says, but it means that Aristarchus had put himself on the line and had tied his life to the life of Paul and was willing, though he did not have to stand before Nero, to forfeit his life, if so be, because God had called him to the side of Paul. And he was devoted no matter what it took. Then he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And how beautiful this is, as it is elsewhere, where Paul sends for Mark to come and be with him. For you see, Mark had been one whom Paul, fresh from his conversion after he'd been a Christian but a few years, started out to evangelize the world. And Mark went with he and his uncle Barnabas but they got a little ways away from home and they faced the sea in separation from home and Mark quit and turned around and went home. But Paul is quick to call Mark's name and tell them to welcome him for doubtless, even in that early Christian society, Mark's name had been spread abroad as a quitter. And now Paul honors him and mentions him and reminds them that it's never too late for a Christian to repent and align themselves up with the purposes of God. Then he calls the name of Jesus Justice, one who must have been proud that his parents had named him for the Savior. And he names him also. And then he says that these three are his only fellow workers from the circumcision, that is, from the Jewish community. You see... The persecution in Israel had abated. Jerusalem was more peaceful now at this time. There was less danger in the homeland of the Jews and evidently many of the Jewish Christians had gravitated back home seeking to minister with their own people. But these three were with Paul serving the Gentiles. Then he calls the name Epaphras, the pastor of the Colossian church, who was with Paul, but always labored earnestly for them in his prayers. How do you labor on behalf of other people and how do you labor for the Lord on your knees? You try to labor for God with your hands and the power of your wisdom and it's useless, it's fruitless, it's sin. You labor for God, for people on your knees. But somehow... We just really believe that God needs our help and our wisdom. 
Epaphras didn't think so. That you may stand, he labors for you, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea. But Epaphras, you weren't out every day talking. And Epaphras would say, no, I was on my knees carrying you to the Father. That's the work of the ministry. That's the work of our ministry to each other. The word and prayer. Peter and the apostles told the church at Jerusalem, it is sin for us to leave prayer and ministry of the word for things that can be done by anybody. And that was the view of the New Testament. That's what the ministry is all about. And he calls the name of Luke, who sends his greetings, and Demas, Luke the Greek physician, Demas the faithful one who turned and left Paul in a time of need. And then he says in verse 15, greet the brethren, and he names them and tells them to share other letters that have been written with the others and for the others to share their letters with them. And here he is teaching that we must fellowship with God's people if we're to be strong and if we're to be effective. Then in verse 18, he acknowledges that he has written this final greeting with his own hand. And he says, remember my imprisonment. But though he faced a trial for his life at the hand of Nero, he then said to them, grace be with you. And all that God does for us is of grace. I would remind you how Paul said in terms so explicit, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of all His good pleasure. The only reason you have a desire to please God is because He's within you. And the only way you can ever please Him in any way is because of His activity within you. How are we going to reach them? By properly seasoned lives. What are we going to do? We're going to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward them, making the most of every opportunity, letting our speech always be seasoned with grace. Proper understanding of the grace of God will motivate you as you have never been motivated before. There were a couple of men in the early days of the British colonies men who believed in the grace of God and that a man was helpless unless God shined His grace on him and called him to salvation. And some would accuse those who believed that Bible doctrine of not caring for men. And yet George Whitfield died as a young man prior to his 50th birthday. Whitfield crossed the Atlantic 13 times, 13 round trips, nine weeks a trip carrying the gospel to England and America, from Georgia to Philadelphia, inland to the edge of the colonies, and back again over and over and over again. And Whitfield, when he died prior to his 50th birthday, was an old and decrepit man whose life just expired. There was a man named David Brainerd about whom Jonathan Edwards tells us who reproduced the diary of Brainerd and wrote a sketch of his life. Brainerd was a man sent of God to this world and he felt a burden for the Indians. 
He was one of those in the second century of, of this, these colonies on the east coast of our country. One of that number who devoted his life and brainerd every day felt constrained to carry the gospel to those who had never heard it. For three years, Brainerd scarcely slept anywhere but his horse. Four seasons a year. When Brainerd felt the burden to pray, he would stop and get off and get on his face. He was used of God to reach an Indian village because one day during the dead of winter with snow above his knees, the Indians in the woods as they were doing something, several of them came upon Brainerd and he was lying on his face sobbing for the souls of those Indians. How are we going to reach them? By the way, David Brainerd died when he was 29 years old. He had given himself pneumonia. He would not cease until his voice and his strength totally abated and he died to talk about Jesus. How are we going to reach them? With properly seasoned lives, acknowledging that it's all of grace, that we must have His power. Repenting of our own sins and then seeking His face and His goodness. Seeking the furtherance of His reputation and the spread of the gospel. God grant that it may be so of us. May we pray. Heavenly Father, would you salt us with the divine presence? Would you fill us with the divine power? And then because you choose to do so, would you let us be the means of carrying the gospel of grace to those who are in need? Father, I pray that your spirit would purge and clean and cleanse until it is Jesus and Jesus only whom we love. Father, only then are we fit to be your servants and your instruments. Father, I pray that as your light of love shines today, there will be those who respond to that love and come to Christ. I pray, Father, that you would call from us wholehearted commitment. Now, Lord, do with us as you please. And may it ever be that all praise and glory is directed to this exalted Christ so that he may draw me into himself. Thank you for your goodness and your love and the mercy you've so freely given. May we in turn show it to others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing during this time of commitment, I surrender all. What he would have you do, whatever it is in response to his touch in your life, do it right now. Do it quickly. Who will be first?